Augmented reveals the stories behind a new era of industrial operations where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 30 of the podcast, the topic is Rethinking Workforce Learning. Our guest is George Westerman, Senior Lecturer at MIT Sloan and Faculty Director of the Jamil World Education Lab. In this conversation, we talk about how the industrial workforce learning system is broken. We touch on the history of pre-K to gray workforce training. We discuss transforming the way workers get the skills they need to thrive in the context of the evolution of digital transformation. The trick is balancing work with learning and changing the way learning happens. But what to learn? Westerman's work has yielded the human skills matrix. And how to learn? His research identified a new model of corporate learning and development called the Transformer CLO. Augmented is a podcast for industry leaders and operators, hosted by futurist Trono Nuenheim, presented by Tulip.co, the frontline operations platform, and associated with MFG Works, the industrial upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Each episode dives deep into a contemporary topic of concern across the industry and airs at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time every Wednesday. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast industrial conversations that matter. George, how are you? Oh, it's great to talk to you, Tron. We don't see each other enough. I, I Yes, I would agree. Good. So our, our um, context, I guess, is, uh, is MIT, your senior lecturer there. You've been doing a bunch of different things lately that I thought we would uh, chat a little about. Uh, but before that, I wanted to cover you know, your background. You've got an interesting background, uh, a lot of business and organizational development. Uh, how did you choose your field? Uh, you're currently deep deep into learning and organizations. How did that happen? Yes, yeah, so I started as an engineer. And like any good engineer, I think I felt like organizations would work so much better if there just weren't people in them. And as I moved up in the world, I realized people were important. Uh, and through a l- large interesting set of coincidences. I ended up going back for my doctorate uh, at 30 plus years old and um, getting a doctorate in driving innovation, in innovation leadership. And that brought me from the consulting world over to MIT. And in MIT, I started off by studying more technology organizations and then moved into digital transformation. And about three years ago, in studying digital transformation, you know, we were all talking about what happens when the robots eat your jobs. And we realized, of course, they're not going to eat your jobs. They're going to eat parts of your jobs in most cases. But either way, our society and our labor market is not set up well to help people as their jobs change. They, they are really at the behest of their employers or the universities. And it's just not a good situation. So about three years ago, I shifted over to move most of my effort from the management school over to our open learning department to focus specifically on how do we transform um, learning and development, especially at workforce learning around the world. So, you know, in the management department, I was talking a lot about driving digital transformation. I've got a great book on it and all, you know, 10 years of research on that topic. And so what, what we're talking about now is how can we digitally transform workforce learning so that the people get to have the same benefits mm-hmm. that organizations do through digital. So, George, let's take this kind of one step at a time. How 
you said the learning system essentially is broken. What, what is broken about it? It's very heavily front-loaded, first of all. Um, you know, you do a lot of investment in yourself and in individuals through high school and through college. And at that point, it stops. And, it's, and you know, the next 40 years of your career, there's not a lot unless you go back for a master's degree. So number one, it's very front-loaded. Number two, it's very degree-based. And these are very heavy investment, big chunks of information that may or may not be translatable to job skills and competencies. So number one is that that pure education degree-based focus works great to get you into a job. It doesn't work as well once you are in jobs. And as job, uh, careers move farther, that's hard. Second of all, the programs that are available for you after, whether it's exec ed in different schools, whether it's online courses, whether it's the YouTube videos you look at, there's a real lack of clarity on the value you get. And there's a real lack of clarity in employers on the value you, 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 you obtained through that, right? If you add to that, that many employers are not really training their workers, at least certainly not the way they were when I started in my career. So what we have is a situation where employers are training their people less for career progressions, especially at the lower skill levels, where this upfront, heavy investment, big chunk education process is great for getting you started, but not necessarily moving you along. And also this idea that... Um, there's just not a good currency. Degrees, certificates from programs don't translate well to job requirements. Jobs are typically not specified in a, in a clear currency. And so the idea that, you know, if we could say what competencies you're training, what competencies you have and what competencies you're hiring for could be fantastic. We're not at that situation yet on any of the three parts of the, 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 the pyramid there. So it's broken. Okay, so this, uh, got it. It's broken, uh, but, but it, what you just said opens up a panoply of different questions. Let's, so let's try to uh, unbundle it the following way. Why don't we look a little bit at the history? So you, uh, you alluded to the fact that it's actually broken all across the boards from, from I guess, pre-K to gray. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not just the school system. Uh, it is also workforce uh, training that's broken. And, and then you, you have a, a bunch of people who are living longer and are interested in, in, in being productive, you know, l later on. So what is the history of, let's just take maybe workforce learning. How was that historically tackled? And what's, uh, you know, what's kind of the path there? Yeah, and, and I don't study the history of this world, but I can tell you what I've learned from talking to people. Number one is that, you know, there were apprenticeship programs going back from the Middle Ages that would help you develop a skill and stick with it for your life. Those don't really exist, at least in the U.S., very strongly anymore. We had union systems, which would help you advance through your union progression those have certainly been devalued over the last 40 years or so. And then in, in, in corporations, partly because the, the contract, the social contract's broken, that, you know, the loyalty on both sides, loyalty of workers to companies and companies to workers has decreased since the 80s when, when the social contract changed. Uh, that's not, you're not doing as much learning there either. Add to that that the, the corporations are not necessarily good at keeping up their L and D investments uh, in the contract in the face of other priorities. 
So what's happened? We had a history where you could get an apprenticeship and move on. The lucky people could get an apprenticeship and move on, or whether your union job would help you move on, or whether your where your employer would help you get the skills you need. And in the last 40 years or so, those are not happening the way they were before. What that means is it's now the employee's job to own their own career progression and to obtain the learning that they need to obtain. And the lucky employees can do that. Mm-hmm. The ones that have time, that have money, uh, the ones that often need it most, those are at the lower educational levels, the lower income levels, are in less of a position to do this for themselves. And so that, that, that means that they're stuck. They've got even less opportunity than others. Okay. So that's a bit, that's, is a big problem. Um, all right. So there's two ways, I guess. I, I want to hear what your uh, lab, the one you have joined, uh, is doing about this. Mm-hmm. And I also want to understand more about kind of the evolution of digital transformation more generally, because you mentioned that you have studied this in organizations for uh, a bunch of years and written books about it. Are you now bringing with you sort of that legacy or are you actually rethinking it in light of this sort of somewhat adjacent challenge? Because one thing that I've seen lately is, you know, and I've reflected a lot on after COVID is that think about digitalization was, you know, happening for the white collar worker. That's really what we talk about when we talk about, you know, digital change, even all these big tech companies, the whole evolution is a white collar office worker revolution. But a lot of what you're talking about is sort of uh, learning and and digitization of kind of traditional blue collar work, or at least work that's, uh, you know, accomplished more on the go, whether it is in factories or somewhere else, it's not, you know, you may not have the convenience of sit, sitting down in a nice office with a, with a screen. So I'm, I'm assuming that for you also changes a lot of what, what the opportunities and, and challenges are. But I mean, I'll leave it to you. Do you, do you want to uh, g- give us a sense of how much you were able to kind of pick up and bring with you from that tradition and, and how much is actually very different in this new challenge? You know, like any researcher or any manager, everything you do today builds on everything you've done in the past. And so you know, what I've learned, what I learned in studying innovation, what I learned in digital transformation automatically moves over to this world. Uh, and, you know, when we think about digital transformation, certainly there is that process of doing your work digitally, but there's so much more than that. There's, there's redesigning your processes to make them better, right? And that may actually mean eliminating work or eliminating steps in your work. We, in our digital transformation research, um, we think about four areas where the, there are great opportunities to look. Number one is the customer experience. And we all know what we've seen over the last 10 or 20 years with online customer experience, hybrid customer experiences, even pure digital businesses we're working with. Number two is the employee experience, smoothing out the problems there, cleaning up the information we've got, making it easier for people to do their job and easier for them to make processes more efficient. Number three is operations, either digitizing operations, but more often optimizing operations. And Industry 4.0 is a wonderful example of that. But in the white-collar world, uh, you know, in insurance companies and others, the workforce work, the, the transformation of processes has been huge. And then uh, last but not least is the business model change. And that's more than just becoming the Uber of your industry. 
there's a tremendous amount you can do by adding a digital enhancement to what you've got. Uh, so for example, you know, sorry. Uh, so for example, you know, changing a purchasing process into a rental process, groups are doing this all over the place, having a chainsaw by the hour or, you know, that's becoming a very possible thing or building digital enhancements such as the elevator operators who know how to fix the thing before it breaks rather than, than after it breaks because they've got all the, the telemetry information to make those choices. So there's customer experience, there's employee experience, there's operations, and there's business model up changes. That's where we say to look for digital transformation. But I do need to add to that, it's not just a digital problem. It's really a leadership problem. When you think about digital transformation, the hard part is transformation, not digital. And in fact, I've got my own version of Moore's Law. And my version is, you know, Moore's Law says technology changes really quickly, right? And my version says technology changes quickly, but exactly. organizations change much more slowly. And we have that problem in the education right. system. And if we were to add one more thing to that, Technology changes quickly, organizations change much more slowly, and organizations embedded in systems of complementary collaborators change even more slowly than that. And as we think about the labor market and as we think about the, the uh, education, it is organizations embedded in complex sets of complementary organizations. It's really hard to make change happen. Yes, and, and in order to do that, some people just pick one part, I guess. Uh, I wanted to ask you about some specific elements that you have focused on. And one of them, I do believe, uh, it, it certainly affects all of it because it's a systemic feature when you look at it, uh, it, it you know, o overall. But it's, of course, also individually relevant to that would be the human skills matrix that you've developed. Mm. So what is that all about? Human skills, of course, intuitively is very well understood. You sort of think you can kind of uh, classify certain tasks and then you figure out whether, you know, you can either train for them or I mean, it sounds pretty reasonable that, that that skills is a you know, readily understandable concept, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. It is. Uh, it's also much more valuable than I think we have given credit over the last decade or so. Um, when we've talked about what we're finding in digital transformation and what MIT found in our, in our broader work of the future initiative is that robots are not stealing jobs as quickly as we thought, but they're certainly changing jobs very quickly. And, um, and there will be adjustment required in many parts to get the skills. Now, what skills are going away? Routine work. If you do routine work, if it hasn't already been automated away, it will be over time. Uh, so that needs to go. The, the technical skills, some of them are more and more uh, more automated than others. The codifiable technical skills are more automatable. The less codifiable skills are not. But what we're finding is, is still unautomatable in many ways is the softer skills, the, the non-technical skills. Um, and, you know, I've, I've got a matrix here. I'll just show you just for fun. But, you know, we basically came up here with a set of 24 skills that we call the human skills matrix. Uh, what happened is when we started this, we were getting calls for how do we, what are the soft skills? And I went out and said, Hey, give me a definition. And uh, the definition we found is that we found 41 different frameworks for these soft non-technical skills. 
And so given 41, then we said, listen, let's, let's put them together. Let's synthesize that and let's figure out our own definition. And our definition is very simple. And Trond, I think you have the, uh, the URL there to get at it. Um, we put these 41 framers together. We did interviews to figure out elements that might not be on there. And then we did some expert card sorting and other things to get to the, the ones that are really critical. These are the 24 durable skills that workers are going to need to thrive in today's environments as they rapidly evolve. So they're, they're, they're involved. How do you think? Critical thinking, creativity, systems thinking, ethics. They're about how do you interact with others? How do you work with others? Communication, collaboration, empathy, these kinds of things. They're about how we manage ourselves and they're also about how we lead others. And what we've done here is we've created this human skills matrix as a way of clarifying what our definition is of these skills. And now we're starting to build out what do we know about the best assessments for these things? What do we know about the best training opportunities for this? And so through a combination of our own work, building role plays and workshops and these elements, and finding the work of others, we're just trying to catalyze attention on this idea. Now, I've just said a lot, but let me just say one more thing about why these human skills matter so much. Um, we, we understand that most of these skills are less automatable than the more tech, than technical skills. Uh, sorry, certainly they're less automatable than routine skills. They are less codifiable than many technical skills. And that, that means they're probably going to be more resistant to automation. Number two, though, we move, our pendulum shifted to training STEM skills. And as we focused on training STEM skills, that's actually a valuable thing. STEM skills get a value in the market. STEM skills are very measurable to know whether you've got them. But what we find over and over again is we train for skill, we, we, we hire for, for hard skills, and we fire for soft skills. And just start starting to find the studies there also that say we may not pay for the soft skills to start, but they help you advance farther in your career over time. So these things have been gotten less attention. We're trying to give it more attention. And we think that they, they need, we are going to try to build up the opportunity to get the right tools to train and assess these so you can know them early and you can develop them as you advance in your career. Part of this work you're doing directly uh, through this Jamil World Education Lab. Tell me yes. a little bit about you know how that uh, lab got started and and what sort of projects. So you're doing a lot on workforce learning. Uh, you're also interacting with a bunch of entities, uh, uh, you know, around this area because it's not a traditional research area where you can stick to your own guns. It's a, it seems to be a very collaborative area where you have to reach out. You're talking to startups. You're talking to Nonprofits, obviously. How, how do you organize your work in, in, in that regard, and, and how do you move forward, and what are some of the things you've, you've done? So MIT was a pioneer in moving to digital learning. And so what we've been able to do with putting our coursework online, what we were able to do in helping to get edX started, uh, the and what we've done in our exec ed in Sloan and other things, we've done really good work with the digital, but we haven't necessarily attacked the transformation element. If you think at other ages, too, uh, you know, from the pre-K to 12, we've done thing, great work in that area for years from, you know, the technology learning to helping to put more active learning into the classroom and also transforming the, uh, the higher ed space the same way where we go. 
What's happened with JWell, though, is the Jamil family has been funding labs inside MIT. Uh, the the Jay Powell, the Poverty Action Lab, won a Nobel Prize last year. And we they recognized the value of transforming education. They recognized that MIT had already had a good start on making that happen. And they funded this lab to get started. I joined a, a year or two after it started because we had a perspective on pre-K to 12. We had a perspective on higher ed. We did not yet have a good perspective on the workforce learning after that. So I came over from Sloan to really focus on making that happen. Now, what is JWell? JWell is a membership and projects organization where collaborators of all types come together to transform work. I mentioned the three ages, but of course we do this all together too. These are schools, they're universities, they're employers, they're ed tech entrepreneurs, they're international organizations. And what we're doing is we're trying to foster this change. Sometimes schools will come to us and we'll work, you know, they'll, they'll learn from us and change what they're doing. Other times we'll do projects together. So for example, one of the things, you know, the way I think about workforce learning is that we have three, pro three ways that we engage. One is conversa their conversation, their content, and their collaboration. And a conversation is pulling the people together to have good thinking together about a key topic. We had 100 people get together for Human Skills Matrix two days before MIT stopped working on campus for COVID. Uh, we had a virtual one with 100 people to talk about transforming learning and development in organizations. We're going to have another one on community colleges and, and bridging the employment, uh, the school employment gap coming up next month. These collaborations, plus our membership events, are ways to get real focus on the topic. We then do content, research studies, which you know we're talking about some of the ones that, that my group's been working on, uh, and also just report outs and other things to be, and, and modules that get developed that can be used. And the last is collaborations. Collaborations is where we're working with projects with other organizations to make real change happen. And that's happening in South America, it's happening in Asia, it's happening in the U.S. But these are projects where we work together to make a real change happen on the ground in some part of the world. So conversations, collaboration, conversations, content collaborations, that's what we're all about. And uh, we're, we're just doing some amazing mm -hmm. stuff. So human skills. Well, it example. sounds like it. And how much of that content how much of that content is actual curriculum? Because you, you did mention early on that we need to change education. And, you know, part of the edX thing wasn't just, you know, putting a course online. It actually entailed changing the course uh, content because, you know, the context changes and you're not in the classroom. So you can't pretend you're, or you shouldn't pretend you are in the classroom. It's a different context. What, what does that mean, especially in this workforce context where you're talking uh, I'm assuming, we haven't talked so much about it yet, but there's this notion of middle skills that I wanted to talk a little bit about. And, mm -hmm. and part of the strategy, longstanding strategy in the U.S., copying Europe, I believe, is to kind of outsource a lot of that to the community college uh, system, in, at least in the U.S., that's what it's called. Um, now, these the modalities there change. It becomes more distributed uh, what is your thinking there on the kinds of curricula and learning materials that are needed 
for for middle skills. I don't know if you believe in this term, middle skills, but uh, you know, maybe maybe kind of explain a little bit that that whole uh, aspect. Yeah. So, Tron, you would ask two questions. One is, you know, the kinds of pr- products that JWell produces and services JWell produces. What are they? And then, then that middle skills. I think that middle skills is a really important question. Let's do the first one first and come back to it. Um, you know, some of the things that yep. we are uh, are doing. You'd ask how much is curriculum in the, in in JWell. There's a little bit of curriculum, uh, but our emphasis is really on transformation. So, for example, we have a new introductory course on model driven digital model based digital threat that just launched last month, uh, we have this interesting thing for middle skills called Mass Bridge, which we'll talk about. But in addition to that, you know, uh, my colleague Vijay and I are advising the World Health Organization as they launch a 10 million person digital campus for to transform health education around the world. Uh, we are working with schools in Latin America to redefine what it means to be an elementary school. Uh, other really fascinating things going on around the world in that area. In addition, we're doing roundtables with chief learning officers, with heads of liberal arts institutions to think about how, what that means there. So while we do have some curriculum we launch, our main emphasis on transformation and how we can give the elements and the insights to make that transformation happen. Yeah, let's talk about the middle skills, and and then I am curious about how this translates into uh, you know executives in organizations because that that does sort of tie back a little bit to your original background. But let's talk about these yeah. uh, the, the the skills. So yeah, we are doing some fascinating work on the transformation of learning and development in organizations, and we can jump into that. But middle skills, this is a really important area. Uh, you know, there's a lot of literature out there that shows that college educated people have made managed to keep up and actually advance their standard of living since the 70s and 80s, where high school educated have barely caught up. And this middle skill, like you mentioned, it is a tremendous opportunity to go to that next level, get some specialized skills that can help help for you get a good career with a college degree. Um, One project I'm really excited about is what we're doing right now. It's called MassBridge. And we are working with the state of Massachusetts and with six community colleges in Massachusetts, funded by the Department of Defense, to re, to think about the next level of manufacturing training. So if you think about what community colleges typically train you for, they're tra- training you to get a job on a production line and to follow instructions. Now, I'm, o- I'm oversimplifying, but that's what we're talking about. And yet these new technologies out there, um, additive manufacturing, integrated photonics, uh, working with these lightweight materials, um, doing robotics, working with the industry 4.0. These require a level of skill uh, beyond that that's more than just a new way of following instructions. It requires a whole new way of thinking. It requires the specialized skills in those advanced technologies, but it also requires um, more systems-level thinking, more ability to troubleshoot rather than just follow instructions, more ability to install rather than just use. And so we've separated this problem. There are the advanced technology skills, how to to program robots, how to make additive manufacturing work. And then there are those core that are common to all those advanced technologies. That's the higher level thinking. And in MassBridge, we're focusing on that. We're calling it the bridge between traditional and the most advanced manufacturing. And so, uh, you know, what are we thinking about? Well, learning about 
instrumentation and sensors, troubleshooting, more maintenance, working with PLCs and some basic stuff on robotics, things you wouldn't necessarily pick up in a, in a basic education course. In addition, things like automated systems, some basic computers, data and probability and statistics and understanding how to optimize and simulate beyond what you had before. These are essential for any of those technologies. So that's a long, a long introduction to what we're trying to teach. What we're trying to do is to launch this in the six, six community colleges in Massachusetts as a hybrid online physical element and to make that available across Massachusetts and eventually make that available across the country. It's a really exciting world because here's the thing. You can get out on, with a manufacturing degree from a community college. You'll be trained well in how to be that, that manufacturing technician and you'll make $16 an hour or so, and you'll advance over time. These jobs in the advanced technology worlds are making you $30 to $40 an hour as you start. But we don't have a way to get you in there except for a very few programs around the world. We're going to help you get to that next level. It's a very exciting program. We are launching the curriculum this fall. And yeah. We're launching the curriculum this fall. I'm really excited about it. We have a very interesting work we've done on benchmarking this. So how, what should these programs look like? And how can, you know, what else is needed in these community colleges to make this work other than just the teaching? You know, embedding more work into the learning, tying it to industry credentials rather than just being the degrees, having on-ramp, make it stackable, on-ramps and off-ramps so you don't need to go through the whole two-year process. All of these things came out of this really interesting benchmarking report that we're happy to share. Can I ask you, George, a high-level question? Because mm-hmm. you know, when it comes to training or or even education and, and ed tech, a lot of people may, have now made the assumption after, or I guess I should say during COVID, where it's not over, um, that all of that is going to now move digital because face-to-face is is uh, inefficient and this and that. What is your current best practice when it comes to this specific type of training? So, you know, you've been talking now at length about community colleges and implementing some changes there, but you don't seem to talk about a virtual concept. This is very much still, uh, I guess, a combination, right? This is a hybrid. Why is that? I I wasn't clear. MassBridge is going to be a largely digital-based curriculum. And, of course, the, the, the physical programs can incorporate it in what they are. But we're looking for this digital hybrid because it, uh, it can be adopted more readily uh, and it, it, you know, these modules can be shared more readily across them. You know, digital is another really good reason for it, which is that especially the people in their continuing education may not have the time or the means to get from their employer to a campus on a regular basis. And so that if we can make some of this learning digital, it just becomes more accessible to people who might not be able to take it in other ways. So what are we finding with digital? Uh, you know, we, we transitioned overnight 1,200 courses from physical to digital at MIT. We had something like 200 calls to the help desk across all of our students and all of our courses. It worked really pretty smoothly. And we're working now hard, of course, to make this better and better. Our exec ed programs at Sloan transitioned from live in-person to live digital. And enrollment is still strong and the prices are still the same as they are. And I will tell you from teaching those, I think the experience is just as good as it was before. So 
I think that the idea of having the digital option is here to stay. I also believe that there's going to be a more hybrid option available in everything we teach for those people that either can't get there or for those people that prefer to learn in a more digital standpoint, that that will stay at, at least above high school, that that will stay as an opportunity for people. And of course, in the workforce learning world, it's just a tremendously convenient way. If you don't need to be touching a machine, uh, or even if you do, can we simulate it up, up front so you don't have to touch the machine quite as much as you did before? Uh, Digital is here to stay. Mm-hmm. You wrote an HBR article recently about the Transformer CLO, and I'm assuming CLO was Chief Learning Officer. There's so many uh, abbreviations here. But tell us a little bit about what this looks like from the executive side. Because, yes, it is massively challenging as an individual, and we have talked about this, how the system hasn't been set up for individuals uh, You know, in uh, this very challenging uh, situation that they need to either get into the workforce with an advanced uh, set of skills and also get a reasonable pay and, and, and also have some reasonable chances of advancement. But if you are, and maybe maybe let's ask you this, not to summarize the entire article, but if what is your best advice, basically, just for someone who is in the position of uh, and a senior HR role or is in the position of basically advising and, and implementing changes in terms of how their organization learns or tackles, you know, reskilling of their own workforce. What is the main challenge there that these guys are faced with? Learning and development organizations has not changed since I entered the workforce in the 80s. It's been a process of having a lot, you know, here's your list of courses, sign up for them. You may need to take months to get into them and you'll sit in the classroom and you'll take them and get out with a little certificate that says supposedly that you learned something. Of course, we haven't graded any papers. We haven't done a lot of projects to know whether you learned it. We just know that you sat still for the the day or the week of that course. Um, This model is under challenge and we're seeing a new model emerge that we call the Transformer CLO. And what this is, is where the learning and development chiefs are standing up to take take a really proactive stance to help the organization have the skills it needs. So rather than just putting courses up there and saying, okay, take the courses if you're interested, they're working harder to help guide people through their, their progressions. And they're also working harder to make the learning available in the moment as is needed in the format it's needed. So we're seeing three transformations happen. One is this goal of really changing your role from being provider of courses to being responsible for helping the skill development in organizations. And that's a huge mindset change. Number two, transforming the learning process to be be more atomized, more digitized, more optimized for every individual. And number three, along with this comes changing the learning organization to be more agile, more strategic uh, than it's ever been before. So yeah, it's a really interesting article, um, but the key point is learning and development chiefs need to take a more active and responsible role to driving change, and it also means being more agile and more strategic in how you make that happen. You've gone uh, through a a fascinating set of areas. What uh, what is the most exciting for you in engaging in a, I guess, 
much more practical way with these challenges uh, as opposed to sort of just writing about them. Because, you, you, of course, you still do write about them. We just discussed the HBR article. But it seems mm-hmm. like you, you found an outlet here. And, and you, know, uh, you know, pardon me for sort of characterizing your work, but even at Sloan, a lot of what you did was, of course, very I- interactive. You were always working with organizations. But it seems like there's something even more impactful about the kind of approach that you're undertaking with the World Education Lab. How, um, how do you see that going forward? What are some of the more exciting things, you're, you're lo- some of the effects that you're looking to achieve? So it's interesting, you know, when we talk about the transformations needed in organizations, MIT has always been about mind and hand. The thinking hard about something, but also doing something and making change happen. It's always been a part of, of um, MIT. So it's not always been just research it, but also build things. And in the Sloan School, of course, it's very similar. We've got people who focus just on the sociology of this moment or the economics of this moment. And they write really great papers for academics to advance the science along the way. We've got other ones that take a much more practical element and, and they're saying building on what we've learned in those worlds and building on what we're learning in the out seeing the phenomenon in the marketplace, what can we do to tell managers how to deal with a particular phenomenon in the moment? And that I've always been in that middle area. What I've just done for the last couple of years is focus on really let's make change happen on the ground. Where previously I've advised companies in doing that. Now I'm, yes, I'm still advising companies. I'm still doing research, but I'm actually engaged in these projects to make this happen. And so this Mass Bridge project, for example, is such a wonderful opportunity to actually help people get started in better careers and move through their careers better than they ever could before. People that the education market often has ignored after about 18 or 20 years old. That's really exciting. Now, when I look to the future, what I see us doing is the conversations, the, the content, the collaborations. It's, it, we're seeing real impact here. And what we want to do is do more of that. We want to scale this up. We want to have conversations with broader sets of, of groups uh, from schools to employers to international agencies. Uh, we want to build still more content, more research content to help guide things. And we want to do these collaborations either with MIT or MIT helping others to do what they're doing on their own to have real impact. So where do we want to go? We want to take the model that we've got and scale it up some of us doing some of the work we're doing, some of it people that we know about to really make this change happen in a broader, broader way. So what will, what will the next decade's manufacturing landscape look like if, if some of these things get implemented? I mean, are we looking to, are we looking at a world where manufacturing will change more rapidly than it has before or or are we still looking at a kind of complex uh, industry that has so many different bifurcations that even if you get employees trained faster and talent quicker into the industry and, and you know this whole system works better, there's still some slowness in the system that perhaps just is, is part of uh, part and parcel of the complexity of what's being. Uh, accomplished and, and the variety of, of activities that it entails. Well, I think you've hit it on the head about these bifurcations, these different elements of manufacturing. So certainly there's the discrete and the continuous manufacturing, and they're just very different from each other, and they, they have different characteristics. But even within the discrete manufacturing world, um, there's a huge difference 
between the largest organizations and the many, many small organizations in the world. These small employers think about innovation differently and they think about training and talent differently than others. Large organizations, you've got the Raytheons, you've got the GEs of the, of the world in our region, they can help you move in and, and then move around, right? They can work with community colleges to create programs that are be, going to be tailored for the kinds of jobs they're hiring for. The vast majority of manufacturers, though, are these smaller organizations, and they don't have the size or the spare capacity to do that. And so what we end up happening is the, the advanced technologies, the larger organizations are able to adopt them, they're able to train them, they're able to make these changes happen. But if you're a smaller employer, you're going to wait to buy that equipment until somebody demands that you use it in a contract that, that you know is going to be around for a while. And that means also you're not going to hire for those skills until you've bought that equipment. And so where we might have rapid change among the big companies, the smaller employers, we're going to see it be smaller, uh, be slower. And it's going, to, it's going to take time to make that adoption happen there. The challenge is so much of the manufacturing landscape is these smaller employers that don't have the flexibility or the capacity to make change happen quickly. So what I wonder about is once these changes happen quick, once in Industry 4.0 becomes a requirement and not just a way of improving, how fast will these smaller employers be able to make the change? I don't know. Uh, but we see that happening down a few down, years down the line. We'll have to figure out how to make that happen. Well, and I'm uh, hoping that your center will be one of the ones empowering this change to happen, not just from the large organization's point of view, but also from the from the smaller. That would certainly be uh, a great objective to have. Well, thank you so much. This uh, has been a fascinating discussion, George. I hope that we can continue. I know that you have some changes and some new initiatives uh, always in in the in the coffers and, and thinking about new things. So I look forward to to tracking that. And uh, thanks so much for sharing your perspective. Thanks, Tron, for the opportunity, and hopefully, uh, you know, everybody can use the materials we're doing and, and, and do great things out there in the world. You have just listened to episode 30 of the Augmented Podcast with host Trunarna Unha. The topic was Rethinking Workforce Learning. Our guest was George Westerman, Senior Lecturer at MIT Sloan and Faculty Director at the Jamil World Education Lab. In this conversation, we talked about how the industrial workforce learning system is broken. My takeaway is that rethinking workforce learning is necessary, important, and wide-ranging. It will be a massive effort with digital transformation at the heart, but with the need for educational institutions, employers, and the workforce all on board. Do we all agree what skills to teach or to be taught? This is unlikely, but developing a skills matrix is a start. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 17, Smart Manufacturing for All, episode 2, How to Train Augmented Workers, or episode 3, Reimagine Training. Augmented, upskilling the workforce for Industry 4.0 Frontline Operations.